0: Welcome back, everyone, to Part 2 of David Beer's story, Reign of Injustice, as the hunt for Michelle's killer produces all kinds of evidence, as well as definite suspects who admit they were with her late that night. But it's all looked at as being circumstantial. Meanwhile, the trials continue. And within two hours after a jury comes up with a guilty verdict, a new key witness steps forward, placing a man in his early 20s and driving a new Chevy truck with a crying Michelle at the end of her driveway in the early morning of September 12th which should have destroyed the prosecutor's theory that Cal killed her around midnight when she pulled into the garage. A motion is filed, and a new trial is set. Michelle would never reach the end of her driveway that morning, but that's not how the prosecutors played it. They wanted Cal Harris tried, convicted, and jailed, and did all they could to make that happen. And now, our interview with *Rain of Injustice author Dave Beers continues. Please pardon my harsh voice during this interview as I was recovering from a cold on the day of the interview. Fortunately, Dave Beers does most of the talking, and now our story continues. Her, her lifestyle um, did that did, was that allowed when it came to the trials in terms of how she was living, the kind of places she was hanging out? There were probably 12 to 15 different bars or taverns that she frequented who where, they, where she was known within a 30 to 50 mile radius, I guess of home. Did that come out in the trial? Was her character ever assaulted or was she pretty much protected from all that? Yeah,
1: she's pretty much protected from that. Uh, nobody wanted to say anything bad about someone who was believed to be dead. Okay. And uh, so you know but there was a lot there and, and and that was that was that was another thing that really kind of disturbed me. But that's probably that, what got her killed. Yeah. That that they, they somewhat they basically ignored her lifestyle and, and the people she was hanging out with just just steered away from it completely. Even though and there was also some early indications, we were never able to confirm this, but all of the evidence was kind of there, st- starting to take form that, that she was involved in drugs. She had the classic symptoms, you know, weight loss, smoking more, sniffling, uh, not caring about her appearance. So those were all the classic signs. In fact, one of Cal's brothers Said he recognized that because his own son had been, had experienced something similar. So the, all the classic signs were there. And, and we knew that there was uh, drug activity at lefties and there was drug activity at uh, a different car dealership that she was hanging around at when she was down in that area. And they didn't think those things were important to to investigate. And like, who who's she with? You know, what is she up to? You know, the, the other thing uh, that I just recalled, d- during the investigation, w- one of the most routine things that you do is, when you have a case like this, is to pull the video footage from some of these places. Whether it's a bar or a restaurant or a convenience store or whatever, they knew, the police knew, uh, some of these places that she frequented. But did they pull any of the video footage to see where she was, who she was with, what she was doing. Uh, no. Or if they did, they never disclosed it. That this, that's
0: irresponsible. Can you think of any more important things that the NYSP investigation did not reveal, that should have been revealed?
1: Yeah, one of the things, uh, we, we discovered this later uh, after the first trial. W- one of the good things they did do was, was do polygraph exams of some of her boyfriends. Uh, like Brian Early, for example, uh, another man that she had a relationship with at Lefty's. Uh, he admitted to having a relationship with her for a brief period, they polygraphed him. They polygraphed one of Cal's coworkers who they suspected may have had a relationship with her. Uh, there was another man at Lefties who was a convicted sex offender from Arizona or other violent sex offender, they polygraphed him. And uh, they turned over all those results. And they all, uh, the conclusion pages were that they were being truthful. But there was another man, a fifth man, who we didn't identify until later, who supposedly took a polygraph, but for some, some reason it, it didn't get included in the discovery material. Hmm. Uh, and and, and uh, it was only because of our due diligence that we were able to discover that there had been a polygraph of this other man. We, we never did find out what the conclusion was. They, 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 they did finally claim that he was polygraphed and claimed he passed, but we never saw the results.
0: Describe the trials in brief, how each one went, and then when was the most information or the important witness revealed to your team?
1: Well, the first trial went, it was only about two weeks long. It went pretty much as planned. We thought we'd put on a great defense. You know, we called our own uh, blood expert, and I, I, you know, I think Joe Colley did a nice job with uh, cross-examining their expert, and, and we really, really thought that they just hadn't met their burden of proof. But unfortunately, uh, the jury came back and, and uh, convicted him. Uh, but like uh, Cal's co-counsel said later, he said uh, Cal was not convicted for anything he had done, but rather for who he was. Yeah. So it was kind of a character conviction. And uh, so that that was the thing that kind of jumped out at me as to how that trial went. And 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 besides that, uh, probably probably one of the most uh, unfavorable components of the trial being held in Oigo uh, was the fact that it was it's a small town. Everybody knew Cal, and and he, and he had to deal with all the pretrial publicity before he went on trial. So four you know, years car- four years of it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The cards were stacked against him right from the right from the get
0: go. He was declared guilty of murder too, so he yep. was, was he sentenced?
1: No, no, he was scheduled for sentencing, but he wasn't s- sentenced yet.
0: Okay, And then take us from there.
1: Almost immediately after the conviction, uh, you know, within, I'm saying I'm going to say within two hours, Joe Colley, his attorney, uh, gets a call from a man named Kevin Tubbs, and, and he says that he has information that, that he just realized could be significant for the defense of Cal Harris. And he, he didn't—he didn't know of its significance until he read a, a recent article in the paper covering the trial. Uh, so, to make a long story short, we we went and talked with Kevin, and he told a very credible story about where he was
0: and what he was doing. Do you relate that story in detail?
1: Yeah. So, so what he what he said was, you know, Kevin was a, a hay farmer at the time, and his him and his family had been doing some haying on a road just down the the road from the Harris driveway uh, in that same general area. And they'd been hanging that property for a long time. And they had a contract with the owner. And so on on the morning of uh, September 11th, he'd been working on that property and and he had loaded some hay onto a hay wagon, but he had another commitment that morning and, and didn't have time to haul it out of there uh, so he came back the next day on the on the 12th, and he he, he gets up he gets up like 4:30 in the morning, and he, he drove his truck to the field. It, it, it's a long drive up into the field. It's real slow going, and he gets up in there. It's still dark, so he hooks up the hay wagon, which is already loaded, to his truck. He had a, a brand new Chevy truck, and uh, and then it's a real slow descent back down the hill with. Uh, this real heavy load of hay, and then, so when he gets down to the bottom of the hill he he turns uh, onto Forstrom Road, which is uh, a little side road off Hagedorn, and then he comes out onto Hagedorn and goes north up toward the Harris driveway and as he approaches the Harris driveway and he knew he knew the Harrises lived there he didn't know them, but he knew of them, and he he'd actually seen uh, Michelle out there at the end of the driveway, you know, mowing the lawn, that type of thing, usually on a small riding mower. Uh, but uh, so he knew who she was or what she looked like. So he's driving up there and he sees this uh, pickup truck, which he described as either black or dark blue, angled out into the road, kind of blocking part of the road. And there was another vehicle in front of it, off to the side, light colored, he said. And as, so as he gets closer, he, he's starting to get concerned about if he's going to have enough room to get by with this nine-foot-wide hay wagon on, on a, a dirt road. And he, he didn't want to go into the ditch because that would be a disaster. So he's just creeping by. And as he, as he gets right up almost on the bumper of this pickup truck, he sees a man standing there, young man in his 20s, dark hair, and he, he glares at him. then he looks over and he sees a woman he believes is Michelle Harris. And it looks like she's uh, crying or had been crying. But she doesn't gesture to him that she's in need of anything. So he glares at the man again and then uh, goes on his way. And he just creeps by and uh, gets by and then goes back to the farm and unloads his hay. So he revealed that story to us. So our first question was you know who is this guy and uh what was he doing there and and uh so if, if kevin tubbs's story was true uh that punched a big hole in in cal's window of opportunity
0: mm-hmm.
1: so, so we're talking the difference between midnight and, and like 6 a.m in the morning uh yeah, so too- that was pretty huge development
0: did he get a partial plate any numbers no,
1: no. Part, no all, all he was positive of was that it was a Chevy because he says I drive a Chevy and I've been around Chevys all my life. So he knew it was a Chevy truck and a new one. Uh, and he described the guy pretty well. And he said, you get a picture of him. I- I'll I'll know if it was him or not, because we 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 glared at each other. In fact, he he said he told me later, he says, uh, I was almost hoping he's going to say something because I, w- I would have beat the snot out of him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> because Kevin was a big bruiser. Uh, football player. He was huge. Uh, nice guy, though. I like Kevin. But anyway, uh, so he relates this information to us. So we decide that rather than tell the police about it, we want to do our own investigation first, just to kind of corroborate, you know, what he's told us. So, so that's what I set out to do. He corroborated the the hang property and uh, uh, where he'd been the day before, and. And uh, then after he had uh, dropped the hay off that morning on the 12th, he'd gone to his parents' house for breakfast. So we talked to them. They confirmed it all. They, they even remember him telling them about his encounter on Hagedorn Hill. So things are starting to come together pretty well. <clears throat> so based on that information, uh, Joe Colley put together a motion, uh, what they call a 3.30 motion. Uh, which uh, outlines uh, evidence that's found after the fact that, that wasn't available at the time, and uh, was requesting that uh, there be a hearing. Well, of course, the police found out about it, and and, and they went on the uh, the defense, you know, and uh, uh, tried to discredit Kevin Tubbs the best they could. But in the end, the judge agreed uh, to hold the hearing, and. Uh, Kevin Tubbs and his family uh, testified, went, went in great, and, and the DA tried to discredit him best he could, but didn't work. So in the end, uh, the judge, uh, Judge Smith at the time, uh, found that uh, the Tubbs family was credible, and as a result, he uh, threw out Cal's conviction. Mm, wow. So this, this was the same day uh, that he was supposed to come in to be sentenced on the—, yes. on the Eviction.
0: Man, talk uh, about last minute—a last-minute yeah. last minute save. Hail Mary!
1: So, so that was uh, that was kind of a shocker for the for the uh, for the news media. So Calls gets released from from prison, and uh, he's granted a second trial.
0: We'll return with "Reign of Injustice" Part Two right after these sponsor messages. And now back to our story. What happened at the second trial? Kevin Tubbs
1: was uh, a gentle giant, but he was also a hothead. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so they went he, after his
0: personality.
1: Yeah, they, they uh, really attacked him. And, and he, he wasn't taking any crap from the DA. And then uh, uh, he just kind of lost it, got angry. And uh, you know, that didn't go over well with the jury.
0: He, he it's probably just the, exactly what the DA wanted him to do.
1: Yeah. yeah they that that they wanted to get under his skin and and they they did that very successfully and uh so
0: as a result uh I mean one uh, would think that the New York State police and the DA having seen this man step up and give his version of what went on and it's been corroborated in 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 any number of ways you would think that there'd be just a a hint in their minds that maybe it's time to see some true justice you would think
1: i mean that was my whole point uh
0: but no, not at all. They're, they're trying to save their reputation. They had a theory by God, and they're going to stick with it if they have to see this guy go to the chair.
1: Yeah, I mean, because they, they had, you know, I, I was hoping, having been a former police investigator, that uh, they would take that information and investigate not only Kevin Tubbs. I understand their reason for investigating him. But once you're done with that, you've got to investigate what he saw. Yeah you know and 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 find try to find out who this person is and did they, they might be there, but they but they never do
0: <laughs> yeah and there again your injustice there's your reign of injustice right there
1: so so it it became a matter of of salvaging their case uh, against cal
0: so what happened what was the outcome of trial 2
1: he was convicted and and this time he was sentenced to uh, Twenty-five years to life.
0: Yeah. Even with Tubbs saying that, hey, th- there's there's the last person that likely that saw her alive. He saw him, and he can identify yeah. him. Even with that, the jury turned yeah. against him.
1: Well, and on top of that, just just to add to the argument, uh, he was retried in that same little town uh, again, with it with everybody knowing that he'd already been convicted.
0: Didn't they ask for a different venue? They did, but it was denied. So, So he's convicted. Yeah. And what happens then?
1: Well, he goes to prison. for. uh, He was committed to uh, the Auburn Correctional Facility up in Auburn, New York. And he he remained there for the next uh, three and a half years.
0: And what happened with the children?
1: Uh, They were cared for by his aunt, uh, who was uh, his dad's sister. Uh, So, they basically raised the kids. uh, Same
0: property, or was that... um... Or did they did sell they, the property? Did they sell the property, and did he lose the dealership?
1: His general manager took over the dealership, okay. uh, but no, they kept the house for the time being. Uh, I don't, I don't know if they continued to live there or if the kids went and lived with with their aunt. Uh, but she was, she was great with them. Very strong supporter of Cal, and uh, she since passed away, unfortunately. But uh, she would take them up to see Cal uh, every weekend at the jail. Uh, so he he stayed in, uh, active played an active role in their in raising them. So. Did you
0: continue in the employment of him as a defense attorney during those years?
1: Once he was convicted and sentenced, uh, my role became a lot less. I, I would consult with uh, uh, with his attorney who was writing the appeal.
0: What happened and, with the guys from Texas? What was that story? Very you know, likely it, one of them may may well have been the killer. What was that whole story?
1: We, get, we identified these guys uh, before the second trial, but it was all circumstantial stuff and we weren't allowed to address it to very much uh, extent in, during the trial.
0: But you had pictures. I was wondering if Tubbs ever got to look at their pictures.
1: Yeah, yeah. In fact, I, uh, that was one of the first things that, uh, that, that we did <clears throat> once we identified these guys. And it was kind of interesting how we did that not long after Kevin Tubbs came forward. Another man called, uh, and, and he claimed to have information that could be helpful as well. So so we get a hold of this guy. His name was Stephen Green. He lived down in Pennsylvania, just below Waverly, where this happened, where Michelle worked. He, he, said, he said he was surprised that Cal got convicted uh, because he had heard some rumors around this steel plant where he used to work that two or more employees uh, of the steel plant had been with Michelle on the night she disappeared. He said it was pretty common knowledge uh, around the steel plant. He couldn't remember their names at the time, but he says, if, 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 uh, if I hear them, I'll, I'll recognize who they are. So, I, excuse me, I went back to the drawing board and I remembered after hearing that, that way back during the, uh, when we first started getting discovery material, I came across the lead that was assigned to an investigator to, uh, to interview uh, steel workers. And you know, I, I didn't put much uh, emphasis on the, the lead at the time, because there wasn't much there, uh, but I remembered re- reading it, so I pulled it back out and I'm looking at it, and uh, they ad- it identifies this Stacy Stewart and this Chris Thomason as having been interviewed, well, well, they interviewed Stacy Stewart. They didn't interview Chris. Um, well, they did, but, but they, they didn't tell us till later. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, so I'm looking through the file, and uh, there's no pictures, but there was a, a description of him because he, he, he had a prior DWI, so I, I got a physical description of him. Uh, but they'd also run uh, uh, a motor vehicle record on him, and in, in the motor vehicle record, it showed that he owned a, a 2000 black Chevy pickup truck.
0: Hmm.
1: And so that kind of rang a bell with me right away. So I I, I contacted a, a private investigator in Texas, uh, but she got back to me like the next day. And, and, and in Texas, uh, she was able to get their driver's license photographs. So she sent them to me and uh, you know, Stacy Stewart, in particular, you know jumped right out of me because he owned the truck and he fit the description that that Kevin Tubbs provided. So I hung out on to those photos and and we and my I, I had a friend of a colleague of mine help me uh, with the investigation. we started talking with uh, co-workers of these guys at the steel plant. The steel plant itself wasn't real helpful. They were uh, being very uh, protective. Uh, you know how, Human resources is sometimes, mm-hmm. uh, so so we had to we had to arrange to interview some of these people uh, at home rather than at work, uh, which we did, and uh, they all confirmed uh, the identity and recognized the photographs, and then uh, so I called uh, Steve Greenback and told him the names. Is yep, there's the ones, and he said the other thing. He says, uh, not long after Michelle went missing. Uh, these guys packed it in and, and moved back to Texas. Mm-hmm. I said, "Okay, that's interesting." <laughs> so, so I started to, you know, see these red flags on on Stacy Stewart. Uh, so I started looking at him a little more. And uh, one of the things I learned was, uh, you know, in in the address he listed in in the report, the police report, uh, I decided to check into that a little bit. So I went to the clerk's office and and pulled the real property records on the uh, his house to find out that that he had he had abandoned it hmm. uh, in in February of 2002 2002 uh, and and and, and uh, he had he had he had just uh, closed on the property three weeks before Michelle disappeared and his first payment was due on the 15th of September, huh. never made the first payment, huh. and, and never made any payments. He, he, just, uh, he just abandoned the property uh, and then he finally, uh, he stayed there for a while, and, but then the foreclosure notices started going out, I would got copies of those, and uh, so finally he, he must have seen the writing on the wall and he, uh, he quit work along with his other friend Chris and they moved back to Texas. But, the, but the, and another side story there, uh, on their way back to Texas, they burglarized one of their co-workers' homes, one of the co-workers that worked at the steel plant. Now, that, now they knew where the home was because they, they'd they been invited to go there for Thanksgiving. So they stopped there, they break in, and they steal some cash and some jewelry. And, and, and then we later found out that uh, in addition to the cash and jewelry, he, he'd also s- stolen a a folder with his name on it, because uh, this 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 girl, who was the the wife of the their coworker, was uh, had kind of taken him under her his under her wing because he was having trouble with his finances and she was trying to help him, so she kept a folder in her house with his name on it, utility bill, uh, uh, Time Warner bill, and uh, his car payment, that type of thing. So in addition to the cash and jewelry, that folder was missing also. Their neighbor, who witnessed it happening, described Stacey Stewart and Chris Thomason in the truck hmm. that had a redneck sticker on the back, which which matched his truck exactly. So anyway, with the bizarre part about it was, uh, about two weeks after uh, this happened, this this girl who was who was burglarized and had these things taken, uh, she's telling everybody she knows that these guys burglarized her house and and how upset she was that that this jewelry was taken because one of the pieces of jewelry had been given to her by her brother, uh, and, and that was the only thing he'd ever given to her in her life, so it meant a lot to her. <laughs> so word word spread of, of this happening, and she goes into work one day, shortly thereafter, and uh, her boss hands her an envelope, and, and it's addressed to the bar where she worked in, in, in her name, but in, in care of this bar, and she opens it up, and it's the jewelry, and it has a Texas postmark on it. So obviously our our, uh, case against uh, Stacey Stewart starts to, uh, you know, a lot of red flags jumping up here. I
0: I presume that the New York State Police uh, at that time had no interest in more investigations.
1: No, they, they, uh, their original report uh, indicated that they had interviewed him. And and here's where the, here's where, in in reading that report initially back when it first happened, I never picked up on it. But when I but when when I was investigating it now, after learning this from Kevin Tubbs, I'm reading through the lead, and right at the bottom, the bottom paragraph: Stacy Stewart scheduled for a polygraph October eighth. So he so he was the one that uh, they'd never disclosed.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: We, we, we in talking to people that knew Stacy and and his coworkers and friends, the girlfriend he had, she 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 provided some real helpful information. And uh, so we were under the impression that at, at some point in time, Stacy had poured a concrete floor in his garage for his where he store, him and his Chris stored their ATVs because he he lit a little house, a little cabin on four acres of land. It was in a remote area, had a pond out front. But a lot of space out back where you could go four wheeling. So we were suspicious about this concrete floor, and, and we didn't know if, if it had been poured before or after Michelle disappeared. But all the indications were it was done uh, after she disappeared. So we we started looking at concrete concrete dealers and uh, to see if we could find out you know when it was poured. But by that time, you know, like six years had passed. And uh, some of these places didn't keep very good records. So, bottom line was we were never able to verify uh, uh, when it was poured or by whom. Uh, but despite that, we, we thought about digging it up. Uh, but before doing that, uh, I suggested uh, that we do a ground penetrating radar scan. So we found a, a guy that did that. Hired him. He came down. You know, my my colleague and I went and emptied out the garage with, with the new owner's permission and uh, got it all ready and they came down and scanned it and uh, uh, pretty pretty interesting technology uh, but anyway you know so it was so good that you know you could see the rebar and the concrete you know uh, but but, but in, in a couple of the images there was actually a a, a, a mass uh, probably about 30 inches down that that we couldn't identify. What it was, but it, but it was in contrast to the other the matter underneath the concrete, and we didn't know what it was, but we were very suspicious. So uh, we decided to tear it up. So we did, and you know, we we did it ourselves. We we uh, my colleague was had some experience with uh, heavy equipment, so we tore it all up, uh, and then dug down, but uh, we didn't find anything. And and the mass that we'd seen in the images. W- Turned out to be a a large deposit of clay, mm-hmm. so we were disappointed, and we searched. We, we we dug up an old well, we looked underneath an old outhouse. You know, we pretty much could think that we never found her. So you know, and we had we had an uh, I had another colleague uh, who was a certified diver. We we he dove the pond, uh, found nothing there other than twigs and rocks, So Uh, But but the police never went there. They weren't interested in him. And then actually there came a time when I felt, uh, I talked to Joe Colley about it and I said, you know, I used to work with these guys. I'd like to think that if I share with them what I know, know, maybe they'll take the lead on this. But I went there and and laid it all out on the table and uh, they still did nothing.
0: There was a part of the story where a piece of clothing was found.
1: When when we were interviewing... uh, people that knew Chris and Stacy, uh, there, was, there was two or three, uh, I believe that uh, told us that Chris in particular had made a comment about burning bloody clothes up at Stacy's house, burning the evidence uh, up at Stacy's uh, place in a burn pit. Yeah, so we heard that from two or three different people and, and, and who had contact with Chris on different occasions and, and they heard the same thing.
0: So, he, so had, kind of, he had a pretty big mouth. Did some of those people who heard him talk uh, begin to put facts together?
1: Yeah. Well, well, the one, the one, the one person that told us that was was actually a girlfriend he had while he was up here, and and she said that you know that really concerned her, but but she was afraid to inquire further. Yeah, uh, with him, uh, but when we talked to her, she said you know I I, I wish I had because uh, maybe I would have learned something more. Uh, But she said, I I remember that very distinctly, she said, of him saying that. So when the third trial came along, Cal had gotten a a different attorney, a new attorney down in uh, uh, Long Island. Uh, Bruce Sparquette was his name. And uh, he had his own team of investigators that he was using in addition to myself. So we got together and and decided that uh, maybe we should uh, dig up this burn pit. A lot of time had gone by, um, but the, the new owner we checked with him he said he hadn't burned anything there other than you know branches and stuff like scraps of wood so uh we decided to go ahead and do that it was uh but it was like january but there hadn't been a, a deep frost yet so we got a hold of this uh, archaeological uh dig place at a, at a college and you know, a professor of archaeology there and he had a team that had done some digging before and they were looking for some more experience, so they agreed to do it. They came up and they, they dug it up. I was impressed watching them do it. It was the first time I, I, I was able to sit back as an observer <laughs> and watch them do the work. So they, they dug down layer by layer by layer, and in the bottom most layer, they found uh, several articles that circumstantially were, were linked to Michelle. They found uh, two scraps of clothing, real small. One was beige colored that would have matched uh, the khaki shorts she was wearing. And another one was uh, navy colored, which was the color of the uh, the top she was wearing. And they also found a uh, a partial bra strap, like a sports bra strap, which was also navy colored, still had the clasp on it. You know, Cal, Cal told me that Michelle always wore sports bras. And she usually wanted them to match the clothing she was wearing. And they also found a, a like a six-inch blade of a knife, an ornate button, a house key, and a dime, which predated her disappearance. So all of those things kind of collectively... Uh, we we believed you know corroborated the fact that there had been some burning of clothing at least yeah. uh, in that burn pit. So we we collected and preserved all those evidence all, all those items. But due to the the elements and the amount of time exposed to heat and all that, there there was no DNA. Uh, we didn't really expect to find any, but we did we did have them examined. So when the when the trial came along, uh, we tried to introduce those items. But you know the judge said there wasn't enough circumstantial evidence without uh, Michelle's DNA uh, to allow them into evidence. So that was another blow for the defense. In addition, uh, we, we tracked down uh, Stacy Stewart's truck. Uh, after he moved back to Texas, it was, uh, was uh, repossessed and it was resold to another guy. and We tracked him down, <laughs> way down in the bayou, Louisiana, and Jeremiah, I think was his name. And initially, we were gonna to try to buy the truck to, to uh, have it examined forensically.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, uh, but he didn't wanna sell it. So we went to plan B and, and offered him a, a rental fee to, to borrow it long enough to get it examined. So which we did, we took it to a garage and uh, we had two forensic investigators look it over. Interestingly, uh, behind the door panel on the passenger side, and on the rear seat area, there there was evidence of blood staining. Hmm. Uh, it it had it had degraded uh, substantially <laughs> over the years, and uh, it, we did we they were able to develop uh, a partial profile, but it wasn't uh, enough to uh, include Michelle uh. or exclude her. Uh, but but interestingly, the during that same exam they, they found a. a, a a silver studded earring a diamond studded earring uh, in the seatbelt retractor on the passenger side just kind of nestled down in there and you could tell by looking at it that it was pitted it'd been there a long time <laughs> and the owner said ain't, ain't no woman i know would ever had no diamond ring you know <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so so we had we had that that examined too and, and they they did find uh, some dna uh, again, it was degraded and but they couldn't uh, they couldn't match it to Michelle but they they couldn't exclude her either yeah so
0: and is that as close as it ever got?
1: That's as close as it ever got so uh, you know you know not having you know law enforcement authority uh, you know we were kind of limited but we we did go to Texas a couple of times and then uh, talked to Stacy Stewart you know of course he he lied every time we talked to him, so did Chris. But then, when uh, when Cal got a new attorney, Bruce, he, he he went down there with one of his investigators, and they and Stewart agreed to talk to him again, and uh, so they confront him about the the bloody clothes burning in, in, in his burn pit, and he and he offers this rather bizarre explanation that that Chris and his girlfriend came over there that night, and uh, their clothes were bloody and they wanted him to burn the clothes and 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 give them some clothes to uh, to wear
0: <laughs>
1: and then he goes on to say i thought maybe they'd gutted a deer yeah and uh n- nobody was buying that you know but but that was his explanation and 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 we and we found out during that same interview that uh the police had finally gone and interviewed him and he told them the same thing
0: <laughs>
1: but they do nothing with it
0: uh, did his story and uh, and Tomlinson's story match up? Were they interviewed separately?
1: No, no, they were. They were pointing the finger at each other. No, nah. yeah, you know, none of none of them would say what happened. Uh, but uh, Stacy was claiming that it was Chris who was having a relationship with Michelle, and and Chris said, "No way, you know." He said, "I had my own girlfriend up there," and so. Uh, we we were focusing primarily on on stacy but but i think they were both involved
0: so what brought about the third trial and what happened there
1: well the the, the uh, cal's second conviction uh when when he filed his appeal uh it was initially it was denied but there there was a five panel uh judge judges that made that decision but one of one of the five uh, wrote a, a dissenting opinion, a, a very lengthy dissenting opinion, agreeing with nearly everything the defense argued. So, as a result, with, with his permission, with that judge's permission, uh, Cal's case was allowed to be heard by the uh, the upper court, the Supreme Court. Of New York. Of New York. So, mm-hmm. when when his case went to the upper court, they unanimously overturned his conviction, and he was released again. So that was that was after the second trial. So now, and and in addition to that, they also uh, highly recommended uh, uh, a change of venue. hmm So Cal got his change of venue, and the third trial was held uh, about 120 miles away in another remote county, but in uh, upstate New York near Albany that's where his third trial was. The third trial was kind of a disaster. Uh the judge kind of lost control of the trial and it dragged on for 12 weeks. Mm. And then the jury once they finally got the case, they deliberated for like uh 10 or 12 more days. Wow. C- coming back at least twice claiming they couldn't reach a verdict. And the judge would send them back and they'd have to try again and and finally, they said, you know, we're, we're hopelessly deadlocked. But, but, the, but the interesting thing about that, I, I don't think I put this in the book, but, because it was getting too lengthy. <laughs> but anyway, uh, we found out that the the jury in the third trial uh, was split right down the middle. And they were, they not only split down the middle, but they were split by gender. Huh. The, the women wanted to convict, and yeah. the men
0: to acquit. Pretty much like the early opinions around Binghamton.
1: <laughs> so for, for whatever it's worth, but, but as a result of that, uh, we, we thought we were hoping that uh, they wouldn't try to retry him again, but they did. And uh, Cal had long discussions with his attorney about how to proceed. And based on everything we knew that they knew about what had happened up to that point, it seemed as though Cal had fared much better with the courts than, than with juries.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so he uh, he opted for a bench trial for his fourth trial, and and as it turned out, it was uh, a good decision. Uh, you know, Judge Judge Mott was his name, and, and he he was excellent, um, much better than the third. He kept control of everything, and in the end, he uh, uh, he found him not guilty.
0: Well, now it's time for him to go try and go back and rebuild his life.
1: Yeah, he's still trying to do that. Uh, you know, there's a, a lawsuit pending against the the county and the and the state for uh, a number of things. I don't know what the status of that is, but those civil things can take quite a while.
0: Sum- summarize your story theory as to what really happened for our listeners.
1: <laughs> well, it, it it is just a theory, uh, but but based on. Uh, my assessment of, of everything that I knew uh, based on interviews that that I did or the police did, you know, collectively. Um, I, I think that uh, when Michelle left her boyfriend's house that night, uh, she would made other plans. She went downtown back to Waverly and met up with Stacy Stewart and Chris Thomason, who were, who were frequent flyers at lefties. And, uh, you know, they'd been hitting on her all along. And so they, they hooked up and started drinking, and uh, the hormones start to kick in. And I think she, uh, for whatever reason, maybe thought there was uh, safety in numbers because there, there was a third person there, too, that was uh, involved by the name of Wright Childers. I think he was there that night, too. And uh, so they ended up going back out to Stacy's. Uh, place. She followed him out there, what have you. And when, when they got there, uh, you know, the drinking continued and uh they ended up sexually assaulting her. And then uh, Chris leaves and Wright leaves and Michelle tries to leave, but Stacy follows her. And she drives all the way to uh the end of her driveway and he's still on her tail. So she bet she said I better stop and put an end to this. But when she does, he, he confronts her and uh, wants her to come back to his place. She keeps telling him that she she's, just let me go. I'm not going to say anything. And, but you know, he wasn't convinced. I think that he, uh, he thought he'd be in big trouble if, if he let her go. And then along comes Kevin Tubbs and he, he sees the aftermath of this argument. And after he leaves, he abducts her and, Takes, his, takes her back to her place. And wh- whether it was back at his place or along the way, uh, she tried to resist and uh, he ends up killing her. So I think that's what happened. Uh, don't know for sure, but uh, uh, it, in, in my opinion, uh, it, everything kind of pointed to
0: that uh, type of scenario. Thank you for sharing this story and this book. And we all wish justice could be served. And we're sorry for the injustice that it- seem to be served. Are you left with even a one percent idea that it's possible that Cal Harris still could have done it? Or are you a hundred percent on the other side?
1: No, no, I'm convinced he had nothing to do with it. I, I understand the strong argument that, uh, as him being a suspect. That That's kind of an automatic, but uh, when you look at it from an evidence perspective, uh, I don't think he had anything to do with it. You know, maybe one of these guys will say something at some point or Maybe she'll appear somewhere. I, I don't know. I'm not real optimistic that anything more will happen, but uh, they're, they're not going to pursue Stacy Stewart. Uh, they, they've already gone after Cal and you know if Stewart ever got arrested, his biggest argument would be, hey, he did it, you know he's already been
0: convicted twice, you know, and so I think
1: he'll just uh, walk free.
0: Were you involved in any other well-known cases in your professional work after that?
1: Yeah, as a matter of fact, John, I, 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 just, I just published ah. a second book. It, it, almost as tragic as this one, but, uh, here in the city of Binghamton. Yeah, I, I, I titled it Immunity for Murder. Uh, because the uh, really sad story, a uh, young woman, 23 years old at the time, four small children, single mom. She, she gets convicted of killing her two-year-old son, and she gets sentenced 25 years to life in prison and her other three kids get taken away in foster care. Five and a half years, and the appellate court uh, responds and, and throws out her conviction wow. entirely, saying, saying that the, uh, the evidence, the verdict was against the weight of the evidence, and then they went on to explain why. So she was set free, and she struggled to get her kids back, but she did. The, the real killer, her boyfriend, who was given immunity to testify against her,
0: walked away. David Beers, thank you very much for the Cal Harris story, Reign of Injustice. Thank you for all the work you did on behalf of the defendant. And this is one heck of a story. Readers, uh, look for Reign of Injustice. It's out there at Amazon and everywhere else that good books are sold. David, give our listeners a few reasons why they should go out and look for this book. Well, th-
1: this book is uh, interesting in many uh, aspects. Cal was a wealthy businessman. He had a beautiful wife, four small children. But there was a divorce pending. Despite extensive searches, there was no body, no murder weapon. And only the scant evidence was, uh, would only suggest that, th- there was no evidence to suggest it was an assault or a murder. And Michelle was living an at-risk lifestyle even without any evidence, four years later, Cal was still arrested. Uh, there were several bizarre twists and turns along the way. So bizarre at times, I, if I had written it as fiction, nobody would probably believe it. Nah, that never happened. But what makes it interesting is the fact that it did happen. And along the way, new evidence and other suspects uh, were ignored. New defense witnesses were turned into villains. And the book also addresses the very issues plaguing our criminal justice system today that result in far too many wrongful convictions. The specific causes are multiple and often difficult to identify, but this book identifies several, including but not limited to conflict of interest, confirmation bias, malicious prosecution, failure to investigate, fabrication of evidence, suppression of evidence, lack of accountability, and supervisory oversight. I've often been asked by those who've read the book, how much did all this cost? The truth is, Cal's the only one that knows that. However, I would say a conservative estimate would be well over a million dollars. That being said, in a similar situation, The average person would never be able to afford all that that was necessary to defend themselves in as much without his financial resources, Cal would likely still be in prison. Well said. Yeah, I get get asked that a lot. You know, how much did this cost? You know, what do you think? You think Cal's still be in prison if he couldn't afford this? Well,
0: probably. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was nice meeting you. And I'll look forward to our next talk and receiving your book. All right. It will be on its way soon. Bye-bye. Thanks again. Thanks for joining us for Reign of Injustice, The Cal Harris Story by David Beers. I highly recommend this book, and this interview should serve as a primer for you. There are a number of notable moments in the book that you'll find remarkable, one being the signal that Beers saw lead state police investigator Susan Mulvey flash to her father, whom Cal Harris had fired, in the courtroom when the jury delivered the guilty verdict to Harris. There are many more instances described that make you wonder how the state police operate and how many people are wrongly accused and tried every year. When Tubbs stepped forward with what was proven to be an honest story, that should have blown up the prosecutor's theory that Michelle had driven home to her garage around midnight and that Cal killed her there and then. Yet they stuck to their theory and succeeded in rattling Tubbs and turning the jury against him. And why wasn't the second trial held in another county, when all the Oswego public opinion had been turned against Cal? So many questions. I hope you enjoyed the story, and I hope it leaves you with some questions about justice in America. If you did, send us a nice review, especially you Apple listeners, and share this episode with your friends. We'll be back next week, Sunday night, with a brand new episode here at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries Podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Stay safe, everyone, and we'll be back soon.